Well, happy read the passage today. And I'm going to finish up this, this, uh, this section this morning. And the sermon is entitled, Our Great Salvation. Now, by way of review, Peter is writing to exiles to encourage them how to have joy in the midst of difficulties. The manner in which he approaches it is so different from secular methods. How to have joy. I decided to have some fun this week, and so I googled how to have joy, just to see what would come up. Now, many of you probably already know this, but joy is predominantly a Christian term. The vast majority of the hits I got on the Internet, don't do that right now, by the way, but, but the vast majority of the hits I got on the Internet were Christian in nature, and, and joy is, is distinctly Christian. However, I found a few articles they were, they were secular in nature. One of them by the, the psychological powerhouse called Psychology Today, if you're familiar with that magazine. They had an article entitled, How to Have the Most Joy. And basically, when I read the article, the author spent most of the article recounting various ways that people seem to find joy. And then at the very end, he said this. Listen to what he said. Most people become happier with their lives when they take a risk, large or small, and decide to enjoy themselves along the way. Now, what does that tell you? Basically, what the author is saying, according to psychology today, is that if you're going to have joy, just decide to enjoy yourself. Now, now, how much comfort does an article or a, an a advice like that give us? There's none because... There's nothing concrete to have joy in. Do you see? To decide to enjoy yourself is, is not much more than just kind of mental gymnastics of sorts. Now, there's a difference between joy and happiness. Happiness is a secular counterpart to the word joy. Happiness is what most of the people are looking for today. Would you agree with that? Most people are looking to be happy. What's the difference between joy and happiness? Well, I want to give you a little definition here. Happiness is an attitude of satisfaction or delight based upon a circumstance. So, so happiness is always based upon something that you can't really control. It's a circumstance. You, you don't really plan it. It may or may not happen. And many times it seems very elusive. Now, some people will try to, for example, Oprah Winfrey, in all her wisdom, will say this. If you want to be happy, get all the negative people out of your life. Well, that might mean your husband or your wife, for all we know, right? That's not, that's not very practical most of the time. My boss might be, might be my most negative person. Well, if I don't have the job, then I'm in trouble. And so happiness is based upon circumstances. Joy, on the other hand, is not related to circumstances at all. And so joy is much deeper. Joy is a deep down confidence that all is well, no matter what your circumstances or problems or difficulties. It's a, it's a deep down confidence. And what is that confidence? That confidence is that our joy our satisfaction is based on something that's not even earthly. It's something that's promised to us. I believe that only Christians can experience true, lasting joy. And so I have a question for you this morning. We just finished up Thanksgiving. How is your joy today? Would you call yourself a joyful person today? Or would you say that you don't have a whole lot of joy? 
Let me give you a, a very simple statement that what's going to guide us through what we're going to say today. And that is this. If you want to have joy, focus on your salvation. It's as simple as that. You want to have joy in your life that even in the midst of difficult circumstances, focus on your salvation. The greatest source of our joy comes from our salvation as Christians. So when life is difficult and you can't see a way, and when you're experiencing trials, focus on that satisfaction. That's exactly what, I'm sorry, focus on that salvation. And that's exactly what Peter is doing with his readers. If you look back at verse number 8, read with me very quickly. Look at what he says. He says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Now, who is Him? Jesus Christ, exactly. Though you do not see Him, now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. I just want to stop right there. Does that not sound attractive to you? Would you, would you not want, who would not want to have inexpressible joy? Inexpressible, glorious joy. And then he goes on to say, now watch this. This is how you have joy, obtaining the outcome of your faith. And here it is, the salvation of your souls. So Peter is saying that the source of our salvation or the source of our joy is the salvation of our souls. Now, if I were going to um, try to encourage you about how wonderful your salvation is, how would you expect me to do it? How would you do it to me? You know, my my kids, when they were in the house, they, they would try to sell me on something what they would do is give me all my benefits, right? This is how it benefits you. And that's how, from a human perspective, I would try to talk to you about salvation. Do you want to have joy? Look, you have the salvation. You, at one time, were an enemy of God. You were dead in trespasses and sin. And God can't allow any sin into heaven. But God, in His great mercy, He loves us so much that He sent Jesus Christ to die on the cross for your sins and for my sins so that we can have this inheritance which is undefiled and imperishable. And we're going to be members. We are members of the richest family in the world. That's how I would sell salvation. That's how I would encourage a a Christian in their salvation, wouldn't you? And that's exactly not how Peter does it. I want you to look at how Peter does this. Look at verse number 10. He doesn't approach salvation from a human standpoint. He says... Concerning the salvation that he just mentioned, concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the suffering of Christ and subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you in the things that they have now been announced to you through those who preach good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven things into which the angels long to look. Now, there are four perspectives that Peter says, this is why your salvation is so great, and this is why you should have joy. And none of these four perspectives are human as far as the benefits that we receive as salvation. All four perspectives come from the messenger. 
Isn't that interesting? And, and so this is how Peter tells the Christians, this is how great your salvation. Your salvation is so great that even the messengers of that salvation are consumed with learning about it. And if you're struggling today with joy, then meditate on the greatness of your salvation because your salvation is so great. Number one, that Old Testament prophets studied it carefully. Old Testament prophets really had a tough job, if you think about it. They had to deliver a message that they don't understand. You ever had to do that? You ever, you ever had to get a message to somebody? Okay, just tell them this. Um, and it's maybe it's an inside joke or something like that. And so you, you tell them the message and maybe they laugh or maybe they react a certain way. You have no idea why they're reacting the way they are because you don't even understand the message we're delivering. The prophets had that. Uh, Daniel is very clear about his struggle with this. In Daniel chapter 8, um, he saw the vision of the ram and the goat. And he said this, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. So here it is. He sees a vision that is given to him from God, and he has no idea what he's looking at. Later on, at the end of the book, he was given uh, some other visions, and he recorded this in Daniel 12. He said, I, I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, Oh, Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? Guess what God's answer was? The very next verse, he says, more or less, he says, you're not going to find out. I'm not going to tell you right now. It's, it's, for, it's for another people. And so these Old Testament prophets didn't understand the message that they were giving entirely, but they searched diligently because they did. In, in, the, in the verse number 10, that first word talking about the Old Testament prophets, that word searched, it means to spare no expense in your search. It means to search as hard as you possibly can to find it. Uh, one of my uh, hobbies, um, I, I have, I'm, I like woodworking, I like building furniture. The second thing I love is astronomy. Now, the thing about astronomy, I have a telescope, and, and for most people see these Hubble images, right? They're just beautiful images, and they think if they buy a consumer telescope and they look through it, that's exactly what they're going to see. And um, since you didn't spend several billion dollars on your telescope, don't expect to see views like that, okay, first of all. But the thing about astronomy is looking through that telescope and knowing the information about what you're looking at. That's the amazing part of astronomy. But what does NASA do? In, I love the space program. I love, I grew up, I saw the last Apollo launch. I remember Space Lab. I remember the first space shuttle launch, you know, when the Hubble and all that sort of stuff. I love the space program. But in reality, NASA is a gigantic waste of money in one regard because of their goal. What's their goal? Their goal is to find two things. Number one, the origins of the universe. If they would go to the bookstore and spend about 20 bucks, they'd be able to find it. Okay. Secondly, they're trying to find life in, in other planets. You, now, planets that aren't even in our solar system. But what do they do? They spare no expense. Tell me, if you can wrap your mind around, how do you stabilize a telescope that's traveling 22,000 miles per hour and get it to point? How does it even know where it is in space? I mean, that's, that's an astounding search that they're doing. And the idea behind this word search, that the, the 
uh, Old Testament prophets did is that they spared no expense to, to figure out this salvation, to figure out this Messiah. We'll talk more about that in a minute. There's another word, and it, it says in the ESV, it says searched, and then it says inquired carefully. That's the idea of throwing a dragnet to try to find someone. The police do that. Why were they searching this way? Why were they throwing out a dragnet to just pick up any little bit of information they could? Because they only had bits and pieces, and we had the big picture. Think about what the Old Testament prophets knew. Do you know what they knew in the Old Testament about the Messiah? They knew a ton, but they, they were missing the key. Think about what they knew. They, they knew that the Messiah was going to be crucified from Psalm 22. They knew that he was to suffer in Isaiah 53. They knew that he was going to be a king in Psalm 2 and Isaiah 9. Now, now think with me, if you knew this about the Messiah, how on earth are you going to put all that together? That's difficult stuff. Um, they knew that he was going to be king. They also understood that the Jews would stumble over the Messiah from Isaiah 65. And they also knew from Isaiah 65 that when the Jews stumbled over the salvation the Messiah was going to offer, that the Gentiles, it would be offered to the Gentiles and they would take it. And I'm glad for that, aren't you? Oh man, that had to be intriguing. Doesn't that, doesn't that sound like a mystery to you? Wouldn't you just love to be able to unpack that back in their day? Try to figure that out. And that's what they were doing. Read verse number 10 one more time. Look at 1 Peter 1.10. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to come, what that was to be whose? Yours. They were writing about. They were studying Old Testament scriptures, trying to understand a salvation that was for a future generation. It wasn't even theirs, and they understood that as well. They, they were consumed with studying the Scriptures to find out about what we now know who is Jesus Christ. They searched very specifically. Look at verse number 11. Uh, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent, glor- glor- subsequent glories. So, they were searching, number one, who the person of the Messiah was. Who was He? They were looking. They wanted to know who he was going to be. And then number two, they wanted to know what time he was, he was going to come. Okay, the timing of the Messiah is coming. Oh, and we're no different, are we? How many would like to know who the Antichrist is? Uh huh. I hear all sorts of speculation, don't you? Yeah, I don't even speculate. I mean, I remember hearing back when I was a kid, oh yeah, the, uh, the well actually this is even more fascinating when i was 12 years i got to tell a story can i tell a story real quick when i was 12 years old uh, my dad and some friends it was all men we went to uh, a jack van emphy crusade and remember how big in the prophecy jack van emphy was at that time and that was back in the 70s well it was 1980 and we'd been listening to him in the 70s and he said this i'm 12 years old 1980 and he says this. He says, the Lord is going to come back before 1986. You know what my first thought was? Are you kidding me? I'm not even going to be able to get my driver's license. <laughs> I was really depressed. 
I was so glad in 19, well, my birthday in 1984 when I got my driver's license. Now, do you know what Old Testament prophet epitomized this search for the Messiah? John the Baptist. Remember, John the Baptist is in prison in Luke 7. And his disciples are coming back to him telling him everything that Christ did. And he, he called two of his disciples to him and sent them to the Lord saying, Are you the one to come or shall we look for another? What's he asking Jesus? Are you the Messiah? And when the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent uh, us to you saying, Are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? In that hour, he healed many people of diseases and plagues and evil spirits. And on many who were blind bestowed sight. And he answered them saying, Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. The blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the the dead are raised up, the poor have good news preached to them. Blessed be the one who is not offended by me. What did Jesus, how did he respond to John the Baptist's question? Old Testament prophecy. Every single one of these were prophecies about the Old Testament. John the Baptist is just dying to know if Jesus is a Messiah. Now, let me ask you a question before we move on to the second point. And the the next ones are a little bit quicker. How diligently do you study Scripture? How much anticipation do you have when you read your Bible or listen to a sermon or a podcast? Our salvation is great because the Old Testament prophets study it carefully. Our salvation is great, secondly, because it's the constant theme of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse number 11 again inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them. Who's the Spirit of Christ? The Holy Spirit. The Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when He predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. I have a hard time with that word this morning. Subsequent. Okay? It's the constant theme of the Holy Spirit from Genesis chapter 1 to Revelation 22 that Jesus Christ in Him crucified, the great salvation that He came to secure. They had the Holy Spirit. What what this says, they had the Holy Spirit inside them, telling them of the sufferings of Christ and His glory to follow. And I've, I've mentioned this, but think about all the Old Testament verses. There's Psalm 22, the crucifixion. Psalm 69, the suffering and abandonment by Christ. Uh, Isaiah 52 through 53.10, His suffering bears our iniquity. Daniel 9.24-26, the Messiah will be cut off. Zechariah 12.10, He'll be pierced and I could go on. And if it were for the Holy Spirit, they would have no idea of any of this. It's the Holy Spirit revealing it to them. And they wouldn't have any ideas of the glories of Christ either. He would become a king according to Isaiah 9. We'll hear that a lot during Christmas, won't we? The government shall be upon His shoulders. He would be a glorious king in Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, as well as Zechariah 2 and Zechariah 14. He would be glorified and praised. The suffering and glorification of Christ are major themes of the Old Testament. Quite literally, it's the theme of the Old Testament. The suffering and glorification of Christ. Do you remember what Christ said on the road to Emmaus? Now remember this. Um, he, he died on the cross. This is in Luke's account. He died on the cross. He was resurrected. And Luke tells us in the last chapter that uh, two men were walking from Jerusalem to Emmaus on Resurrection Day. And and um, they're walking, and this man asked to walk with them. And they start 
talking about the crucifixion of Jesus. And Jesus kind of reveals Himself to him, and He says this. He says, And He said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. All that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. Wouldn't that have been amazing to hear Christ do that all in one shot? Say, this is what the Old Testament has to say about me. Why didn't you understand it? Now let me ask you a question. What's your understanding of the Old Testament? I meet a whole lot of people who have a misunderstanding of the Old Testament. And this is what they say. This is a common misunderstanding. The Old Testament is the the um, angry God of the Old Testament. The judgmental God of the Old Testament. The New Testament is the merciful God of the New Testament. You ever heard that one? What a misunderstanding of Scripture. That can be greater misunderstanding. All through the Old Testament talks about the mercies of God. Another one you know, people get hung up on is the idea of all the promises uh, that when you tithe, you're going to become rich. You ever hear that one? Malachi chapter 3. And everybody's like, oh man, health and prosperity people, they, they love that kind of stuff. And, and if you're a good parent, your, your children are just going to be blessed. And, and what we misinterpret is what the Old Testament is for. Let me give you a, this is not 100%, but this is a general principle about interpreting this Old Testament. You ready? The Old Testament is a physical picture of spiritual realities. Okay? The spiritual reality is, if you're generous, that's because you have a generous heart, you give to the church, God will spiritually bless you now, and you'll have rich blessings laid up for you in eternity. Okay? It's not for this life. Does that make sense? All right, that's a rabbit trail. That's not even in my notes. Let's get back to my notes for just a minute. So Jesus tells his disciples all about how the Old Testament, and these Old Testament prophets are trying to figure it out. It's a constant theme of the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, the apostles preach salvation. I'm just going to gloss over this very quickly. It revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that now have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Did you catch that? In the things that now have been announced to you. That would be the the Scriptures, the New Testament Scriptures, the Apostles' teaching. They've been announced to these exiles. By the time Peter is is writing to these exiles, several New Testament books have been written. We know that foundationally there there were quite a number of Apostles who saw Christ who were out preaching Christ. There were the twelve. There were also um, some a couple others. And they were out preaching Christ. They were announcing the salvation. And they were teaching them all about Christ's salvation. And so it's the, it's the apostles who preach salvation. Our salvation is so great. It, it occupied their study. It occupied the, the theme of their teaching and preaching. And so they were constantly announcing that salvation to people. It was a constant search of the Old Testament prophets. It was a constant theme of the Holy Spirit. It's the constant preaching of the apostles. And let me give you another reason that our salvation is so great. You ready? Lastly, 
The angels long to see salvation. Now, this is the most intriguing one of everything. Look, look at your passage again. Verse number 12. Very last little phrase. Just kind of almost like an addendum. Just a real quick uh, thing. He says, things into which angels long to look. Now, let's just let's just think about this for a minute. Okay, was salvation for the angels? It wasn't. Did did the did the angels see Christ before he came down to earth? Oh yeah, they all did. The angels um, saw all this, and he says the angels long to look. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to be an angel? I I I have. Have you ever wondered what it would be like? To see that dimension that we can't perceive, that they can perceive. They see both. They see the physical and the spiritual dimension. We only see one. Have you ever wondered what it would be like to see uh, what the angels uh, have seen? To, for them to battle demons in that sphere? That's a mystery to us. You know, When you read Daniel, you find that there's an interpretation that he prayed about. And the archangel was trying to deliver it. But it says that the... The, the angel, I think it's in charge of, is it Babylon? Uh, I can't remember which one it is now. But uh, he was doing spiritual battle with that angel to, in order to deliver that message to Daniel. That, that invisible world that's just as real as ours, not, not only able to see that, but the physical, the physical world as well. Have you ever wondered what it would what be like to be part of the angelic world and experience the holiness? I mean, they've been to the throne of heaven. What is it like for an angel to go to heaven and be in the glories of Jesus Christ and then have to come to earth and deal with the mess that's down here? Seriously, what, what is that like? Have you ever wondered what um, it's like to have that holiness that they have? Well, guess what? According to this, the angels are saying the same thing. You know what they're saying? I wonder what it's like to be saved. I wonder what it's like to receive grace. I wonder what it's like to be forgiven. Because they can never experience that. Never. We do. Um, The angels long to look. Now, what does that term mean, the angels long to look? It means it's an unsatisfied longing. It's a completely unsatisfied longing. It reminded me, I was thinking about it this week of a song in the 80s. And the lyrics went something like this. You can look at the menu, but you just can't eat. You can feel the cushions, but you can't have a seat. You can dip your foot in the pool, but you can't have a swim. Another verse says, you can see the summit, but you can't reach it. It's the last piece of the puzzle, but you can't make it fit. The doctor says you're cured, but you still feel the pain. Guess what? That's the angels. And they're going to be like that forever and ever and ever. They'll never be able to experience that. And the holy angels are involved in our salvation. They, they give the messages. They fight the battles. And they have an intense desire to look into this wonderful, gracious, all-encompassing salvation that they will never experience. Have you noticed the desires? The desire all the way through this little passage. You have the Old Testament prophets, intense desire, intense longing. The angels, intense longing. It's the theme of the Holy Spirit. It's the theme of the, the New Testament apostles. 
Now, I want you to do me a favor. I want you to turn to Revelation 5 because I want to show you something about these angels. Revelation 5, this is, is astounding to me in a way. Revelation 5. By the way, when, if you're under me as, as a pastor very long, you'll learn that I go to Revelation 4 and 5 quite a bit because I think it's so important. Revelation 5. John sees in the heaven. He describes what he sees. Verse number 11. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. Now just stop. The living creatures would be those creatures that are around the throne. It's got four faces. And remember that? The elders would be a, um, would be symbolic probably of Israel or Christians. And it says, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. What I find astounding about this final scene is that along with all the Christians who have been saved and the creatures, that there are myriads and myriads of angels singing and praising God for a salvation that they have never experienced and will never experience. But they've they've searched it. They angels know scriptures way better than you or I do. They've searched the scriptures. They know the Christ and they're glorifying him for the salvation. My oh my oh my do we have a great salvation. Don't we? Now you might be here and you might be saying, "You know what?" This doesn't do much for me. Does it kindle a love in your heart to hear about how the messengers search for salvation? In the Friday night um, community life group that I went to recently, Helen and I went to, we studied the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. You remember what the Holy Spirit said about that church? It said, you have left your first love. And what did he tell them to do? What was his advice? Go back and do the first works. Go back and start to live the way that you lived right after you were saved with that hot heart, that zealous testimony, that exhilarating love for God, that sense of hunger for the Word, that desire for Christian fellowship, that love of prayer, the first works. And if you've left the first love, Go back to the first works. That's what it says in Revelation chapter 2. And if I can, if I can preach this message and talk about the greatness of our salvation and it doesn't kindle something in your heart, then something is wrong. And I think there's three things commonly as I close today that I want to go through that cause us not to be, have the joy of our salvation that we should and to be enthralled with the salvation of as we should. Number one, Christians who don't marvel at their salvation don't diligently study their Bible or they don't diligently study the right things. There are, there are ways that are profitable to study the Bible and ways that are unprofitable to study the Bible. But the bottom line is you have to study your Bible. The daily bread, as great a blessing as that is, that's not going to cut it. That more than likely is not going to make you uh, marvel at your salvation. Reading a verse a day. Having one of those little verse a day apps. While they might be encouraging, 
that's not going to cause you to marvel deeply at your salvation. What causes you to marvel at your salvation is to read and study the Word. To listen to podcasts. Listen to guys who will cause you to really ponder your salvation. What does it mean to be in Christ? What does it mean to have the inheritance that we have in Christ? So you need to study the right things, not the things that are speculative. You know, it's great to speculate who the Antichrist is, when Jesus is coming back, how, what's the prophetic scheme. Those are all somewhat profitable, but what is more profitable is to study our salvation and the greatness of it, the benefits of it now and the benefits of it in eternity. And the more you put the pieces together, the greater understanding you're going to have of these prophetic issues. Number two, more seriously, many Christians don't profit from Bible study and they don't marvel at their salvation because their eyes are fixed on the cares of this world. And I'm, I'm going to tell you right now, I think that is the, the single biggest problem of people in the West. We have it way too good. Do you remember what Jesus in the parable of the soil said? Oh, by the way, you'll also find out as when I'm your pastor, I'll go back to this parable so many times because it explains so many things. He's talking about the seed. Remember the, the parable of the sower and the seed and the four types of soil? What is, what is the seed? The seed is the Word of God. The sower is somebody who's evangelizing. The soil is the heart. So the Word of God falls on the thorny ground soil. And Jesus said that the thorns choked the seed out. And the disciples said, what does that mean? And Jesus said this. He said, the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches made, choked the word out, and it was unprofitable in their heart. Now that's for salvation, but can I tell you this? For the Christian that does it too, if, if your eyes are firmly fixed on this world, if all you think about and dream about are the house and the career and what your kids are going to do and this ideal and I have this on my bucket list and i got to finish my bucket list and all these temporal things, do you know what it does? about your salvation, it chokes out that desire you have to see Christ and Him crucified. And it makes the Word less profitable for you. So you have to discipline your mind and get your eyes fixed on the right thing. Number three, let me close with this one. They are resisting the Holy Spirit's call for repentance. We're going to see this later on in the next section. Peter says, Be holy, for I am holy. You're resisting the Holy Spirit's call to repentance. There are some Christians who can't magnify and glorify God in their salvation because they're resisting the Holy Spirit's call to repent of sin. One of the verses in the Bible says this. We need to be, I'm going to paraphrase, we need to be holy for without holiness, no one will see the Lord. And when you resist the Holy Spirit's call to repent of sin, you resist His urging, you grieve the Holy Spirit, and you cannot see God. Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart because what? They can see God. It, it is an, you cannot change this spiritual principle. So believer, if you're here today and heaven doesn't sound that great, your salvation doesn't 
meditating on your salvation doesn't do that much for you, then you need to check your heart and ask yourself, where am I resisting the Holy Spirit's call for me to repent and change and turn to Him? Or you need to ask yourself, are my eyes too firmly fixed on the, these things that the Bible says are passing away? They're not even permanent. They're only temporary. Or maybe the fact is there's something less and you just need to really discipline yourself to be in the Word and thinking about things that are in the Word. Where are you today? Peter, in his epistle, encouraged believers by drawing them to the greatness of their salvation. He did it by showing how much desire the Old Testament prophets, the New Testament apostles, and the angels had to learn what was the constant theme of the Holy Spirit from Genesis to Revelation. Oh, if you want to have joy, go back to the statement I made at the very beginning. Meditate on the greatness of your salvation. Read about it in the Word. Lord, we thank You for the this Scripture. Uh, quite frankly, Lord, I felt inadequate to even try to to magnify You this way. I, I, it's such a difficult job. But Lord, I have confidence in Your Holy Spirit that You are working in people's hearts right now. Lord, I pray that You will call the ones who are not in the Word like they should be, that You will call them to study the Word, that they will discipline their hearts and their minds to study, to understand, so that they will see You in Your glory. I pray for the ones whose eyes are fixed upon the world and, and everything that they're, they're shooting for, their, their goals are all temporal and, and it's, it's sapped their, their, it's taken away their joy, their salvation. Lord, I pray that, that they will repent of that and get their eyes fixed on Jesus Christ. Then, Lord, for the ones who are resisting your call to repentance, I pray that your spirit will convict them and that they will respond to the conviction that they will turn from their sin, Lord. If they need help, that they'll get the help that they need from other sources. And, and Lord, I pray that they'll experience the joy of forgiven sin, the joy of repentant of sin, and the joy of seeing You because now they're leading lives that are holy. Lord, I pray that for our, this will just transform our entire church. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.